All right, we're in Acts chapter 4. It's a long reading today, so you stay seated and I'll read it for us. It's Acts chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 37. Acts chapter 4. You remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had just healed this lame beggar who goes leaping, running into the temple, praising God. And Peter preaches a sermon to, a, to the Pharisees. And then, and then we read what happens next. This is the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Listen, that's the number of men. So think about women and children. That's about 10,000 people in the church. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation, there is salvation rather, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, this is Psalm 2, set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the key verse in this whole chapter of Luke, now remember when Acts is first read, right, the Theophilus is, Theophilus is reading this from the hand of Luke, he tended to read it as this historical work that it was, a reflection of the works of not the apostles, but of Jesus himself. And so Theophilus would have read the book of Acts in pretty large chunks. And so that's why when we preach it, we're actually preaching in pretty significant portions of Scripture, the whole of chapter 4, 37 verses. And the key verse in this chapter is found in verse 29. Would you lower your eyes to your Bibles and look at verse 29? Underline it if you have a pen. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Listen, this is a prayer for the trenches. This is a prayer in verse 29 that you ought to memorize and cherish and know and love. This is a prayer to pray in the name of Jesus. They performed wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Listen, what's in a name? Six times in this chapter, Luke gives us the phrase, by the name of, or through the name, or in the name of. Look at verse uh, 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 17, in this name. Verse 18, in the name of Jesus. Verse 30, the name of your holy servant Jesus. Listen, what's in a name? That's what Luke wants us and Theophilus to understand. 
There is a, a principle of sociology called the Charles Cooley looking glass self concept. If you've ever taken a class in sociology, um, even a, a one-on-one class, then you've been exposed to this concept. It's called the Charles Cooley looking glass self concept, and it goes something like this. What you think about yourself is dependent upon the name of the most important person in your life. In other words, what you think about yourself is dependent upon what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Their name names you. Their name marks you. Their name, in a sense, owns your own view of yourself. Does that make sense? Names have power. In Scripture, when things are done in the name of someone, they were done in the glory or the weight or the power of their very presence. And so if you do something in the name of Jesus, you're doing it in the name of the very power of his presence among you. Charles Cooley teaches us that that's very true of ourself. The things that we do in the name of someone begin to mark us, begin to own us, begin to show us what we really believe. Let me give you an example. Like, let's say, let's say that you had, um, you had, um, oh, oh, who can I pick on? Let's, let's just say that you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? And um, let's say that you, your husband or your wife, and every day when you came into the kitchen, every day when you came home from work, right, your spouse or your boyfriend, whenever you, that he came over, just looked at you and said, you are the prettiest thing in the world, like you're gorgeous. I'm just obsessed with how pretty you are. And every day, this person comes to you and says, you're gorgeous. And this person is the most important person in your life. And he tells you this day in and day out, day in and day out. You're gorgeous. You're beautiful. I love you. I can't believe. I can't believe you could be so pretty. How long do you think it would take you before you began to view yourself as a pretty, gorgeous person? Not very long. Or if we said to Boutros, if we said to, to Baker, if we said, hey, Baker, like, you got the best haircut here, and we were the only people ever to live in time or space, and we said to, to Ryan, how does a barber cut your hair so, how does he get it so clean? And we were to tell Baker every Sunday, dude, you got the best haircut in Owasso. It's like lights out better than, and we told him this every time we saw him. How long do you think it would take Ryan to believe he had the best haircut in the county? Not very long. Names name us. Who is the most important person in your life? What name matters most to you? Listen, in Acts chapter 4, they just healed this lame beggar. And these leaders of the temple, right, it says in verse 1, it says that it was the priests, those were the high priests that were on duty, the captain of the temple, that's like the second in command of the temple. He's like the temple bouncer. He's the guy that's in charge of the conduct of the people in the temple. And it says, and the Sadducees, and they came upon Peter because they're miffed. Because here Peter and John are, they just healed this lame beggar. And he goes into the temple leaping and dancing and praising God. The temple, remember, was a place of worship. It was a place for the holy. It was a place for people to reflect upon their covenant with the Lord. It was a place for them to bring their sins and their sacrifice to get right with God. It was a place of respect. 
And here this guy is leaping and jumping and praising God. And so these dudes are miffed. And they get Peter and John on the east side of the temple near Solomon's portico. And they say, by what power or what name do you do this? And Peter's response is nothing short of amazing. Because to get you there, I've got to take you back a couple of pages to Luke 22. Do you remember in Luke 22? This is after Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. In Luke 22, do you remember that after Jesus is arrested, remember the 120, then the 70, then the 12, and then one. Everybody runs when he's arrested. They're, I mean, they, they get out of Dodge as quick as possible. And Luke says that Peter, in verse 54, it says that Luke, uh, Peter follows Jesus, but he followed him at a distance. And Peter goes to the courtyard outside the high priest's house. And, you know, there's townspeople that gather together and they're watching this show, right? This convicted criminal. And they're, they're going to kind of see what happens to him. And uh, it was like, you know, it was like uh, cops before you actually had this sitcom. And, and so they're, they're sitting there and they're watching this. And this little girl hears Peter talking to these guys as they make this fire together. And she hears his accent. It's Galilean. And she goes, wait a minute. Like, you don't talk like the rest. You're a Galilean. You were with them. And he says to this little servant girl, woman, I don't know what you're talking about. And then not long after that, another one says to him, no, you were with them. I know you're one of his. And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not with them. And then the text says, within the same hour, a third person comes up to him and says, hey, Peter, like, you were with Jesus. And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he denies the Lord. He lies about his association with the name of Jesus. And during the third denial, the cock crows, right? The rooster crows. And he remembers Jesus' own words that before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And through the fire, through the smoke of this fire, Jesus, in the midst of his trial, glances over, and I can only imagine the look that his Savior gave him. And their eyes connect. And the text in Luke 22 says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He denied the name of the Lord. And so here, what irony. The same leaders who had just arrested Jesus and killed him, that he was scared to death of, that as soon as Peter's safety was threatened, he was out of there. And now here Peter stands, the same man, just months later, in the temple, cornered by those same authorities, and they ask him, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter responds in a completely different way. Now the question of Acts chapter 4 is this question. What changed Peter so much just in a couple of months from being a man who couldn't stand up to a seventh grade girl with braces to being able to look the authorities in the face and answer them without flinching? What I do, what I did in healing this man, I did in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What's going on here? Well, I think Luke is trying to teach us a principle that's crucial for every single one of us to know in our Christian life. And the principle is this. 
What you think about yourself is dependent upon what the most important person in your life thinks about you, okay? Let that settle in. Have that in your mind. So kids, just so that you're with me, like imagine Minecraft. Imagine in Minecraft and Notch, right? Marcus Person, the guy who created Minecraft. Like imagine that he were to tell you every day that you're the best Minecraft player ever. Ever. Like the worlds you build are like better than his. And he tells you this day in and day out. And it wouldn't take you very long. Some of the college students go, yeah, I play Minecraft too. So, so it wouldn't take you very long before you begin to believe that you're an incredible Minecraft player. And you begin to view yourself with this tremendous sense of confidence when it came to playing Minecraft because the owner of Minecraft, the maker of Minecraft, praises you, thinks that you are such an incredible player. Luke wants, to, wants us to know this principle, that it's at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we face our greatest critique, but also our greatest approval. That it's at the cross of Jesus Christ that you face the most fierce critique you've ever had in your life. But at the same time, you receive your greatest affirmation, the greatest approval you have ever dreamed of. Sometimes we say it like this, that at the cross or in the gospel, you are more broken than you can imagine but also more love than you can ever dare dream. Listen, that's what emerges out of Acts chapter 4. Why? Because here's a man who responds completely differently only in a matter of months. What happened to him? The gospel tells us that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus critiques us more than anybody's critique could possibly come close to. Like, so those of you who are in school, you know it, when you're growing up and you're in school and somebody says to you, you know, man, like... Like, you're just, you're just a failure. You just don't measure up. And we hear this, and that hurts, right? That hurts. I mean, it's, it's tears are shed. It hurts. And, or your boss were to say to you, you know what? You just don't perform like we need you to at this company, and so we're going to let you go. Like, that hurts. But you know what the gospel tells us? That... Even the most biting critique of the worst critic in your life doesn't come close to being the critique that the gospel gives you. Listen, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? In Genesis chapter 6, when Moses is writing uh, Genesis in the wilderness, and God is trying to describe how far man has fallen in Noah's generation. Moses writes in Genesis 6-5, Moses says that the Lord looks down upon humanity and he says in chapter 6 of Genesis, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's like, like the, it's like Moses like ransacks the Hebrew to figure out how many adjectives and adverbs he can possibly put in one sentence to tell us that we are jacked up and that we're broken people. My people have committed two sins, Jeremiah tells Judah. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, Jeremiah 2, 13 and 14, that can hold no water. Listen, the cross critiques you worse than any critique you've ever had or ever will have. But Peter shows us that there is good news. 
Because the gospel doesn't leave you there. It changes you completely. And the good news is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Into the resurrection, you find that not only do you have your greatest critique, that is that you're a sinner in need of salvation, not that you're just bad at work, but that you are bad. You're as bad as it gets. You're shot through with sin. You may not have sinned in every way that's possible, but you are totally depraved. But into that comes the amazing grace of God. And he says that you were buried with me in the likeness of my death, but you were raised to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6. Zephaniah chapter 2 says, Jesus looks at you. He looks at you as the church. And he says, you know what you are to me? Though your enemies may pursue you, I will protect you because you are the most precious treasure I have. You are the apple of my eye, the ESV says. Or Zephaniah chapter 3, what we always say in our benediction. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one to save. He rejoices over you with gladness and he quiets you by his love. He exalts over you with loud singing. Listen, the nature of Jesus is that he is totally pure, totally righteous, totally innocent, completely innocent. And we are so fiercely critiqued by God. But that he gives us his only son to be for us what we can never be. And at the resurrection of Jesus, when Peter experiences this resurrection, he is totally changed. Because he realizes that the most important person in his life is no longer himself, but it's the Lord. And it's the Lord's call upon his life that gives him an incredible sense of boldness. The word boldness is, uh, appears three times in this chapter. To be bold means to be able to speak confidently in the face of threats. It means to stand secure in who you are in your identity. And here Peter speaks with incredible boldness before the authority. So much boldness, in fact, that they said, look, this guy had not been through the rabbinical teachings. He hadn't been to the Jewish seminary. And yet he speaks as an uncommon man, as a man who's been uneducated, but yet he speaks with such power. Why? Because he speaks with the boldness of knowing that the name that matters to Peter is the name of his Savior who loves him, who gave his life for him, who died for him. Listen, the paradox of Christianity is this paradox, that you are most fiercely critiqued at the cross, and you're also most fully approved and affirmed and loved at the cross. Does that make sense? It's both. And as you begin to live into that paradox, you begin to understand yourself, not in relation to what your boyfriend or girlfriend thinks about you, as important as that is, but the chief person in your life begins to become the Lord. And he sings over you that you are pure and righteous and spotless. And it therefore should make you, and it should make me, what it made Peter and John in this text, incredibly bold. Now, let me illustrate it before we talk about um, um, how it makes them bold. Let me illustrate it this way, just so that you're, you're with me. Let me work on you for just a second. Like, you know that Owasso was a small town that was very rural for many, many years. And most people that lived here built their house in order to work at the airport. And when you worked at the airport, 
there was a locker room that people talk about where they used to come back into this locker room after they would work and they would change clothes in order to go home to their families. And if, if you performed in a way that your boss wasn't satisfied with, then you would sometimes come back to your locker and there would be a little slip of paper on your locker and it was a colored piece of paper and it was called a what? A pink slip. And you knew that when you got that pink slip on your locker, it meant, hey, you can change your clothes and you can get ready to go home, but oh, by the way, take everything in that locker with you because you're not wanted here anymore. But let's say that you walk home, you go home one day into the locker, you go to the locker room after work and you see on your locker a pink slip and you're just crushed. Oh my gosh, like I'm fired. And then the boss, your boss, runs out of his office and he grabs that pink slip and he says, no, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. This is not for you. This is not for you. I'm going to take it and I'm going to give it to this guy over here. And you look where he puts it. And he puts it on the locker of his own son. And he says, that guy's getting fired. He's out. Now, is that grace? Well, yes, it is. But it doesn't go far enough, does it? Because in the gospel, your sins just aren't forgiven. You're not just brought back to zero. You know, that guy would still, you know, go back to work the next day, but you would still wonder, you know, does my boss approve of me today? Is there going to be a pink slip on my locker today? But let's imagine that your boss comes to you and he grabs that pink slip. He says, no, 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 I got it. And he goes and he places it on his son, who, by the way, is the best worker in the company. Fires his son, and then he comes to you and he says, hey, you know what? Just to get your stuff, but I'm going to give you a key. And I want you to use my office. And I want you to take your stuff, and I want you to go and change in there. I want, in fact, I want you to use this office. You can come to it whenever you want to. And so you begin to use the private bathroom. You begin to use the private office of, this, of the boss of the company. Would that be grace? That'd be beautiful. But that's not even close to as far as Scripture goes to tell us what grace is. Let's say you go home from work, and you look at the pink slip, and the boss comes out and grabs that pink slip and sticks it on the locker of his son. He gives you the key to his office, and then he says, hey, not only do I want you to have my office, but I want you to actually rule this company, reign this company, manage this company with me. You're going to be the co-CEO of this company. Now, would that be grace? We're getting closer. Now, you take that pink slip off the locker. You put it on your friend, his son's locker. He gives you the key to his office. You change in his office. You live out of his office. This is your office now. He gives you the title of the company. You're ruling the company together with the boss. And then the boss says a piece of paper for you the next day when you come in. He says, oh, by the way, this is my last will and testament. And everything I own, I'm giving to you. The Bible says that we're not only forgiven of our sins, but your Savior loves you so much that he gives his son for you and he also gives you every bit of his own righteousness and his inheritance. And the reason why it's so hard in a broken world for so many of us is because we feel the weight of the brokenness of our world in broken relationships when people break up with us, in broken relationships when marriages begin to go south. But the only way you can enter into that with a sense of confidence and not be totally dejected is by recognizing what name do you live for? By what power or what name do you live? And Peter takes on a totally different name. He once lived for his own namesake. 
And as soon as his safety is threatened, he's added there. And now just months later in Acts chapter 4, he is living for the name of his Lord. And it makes him, as the text says, incredibly bold. There are five ways it makes us bold. I just want you to see those before we close. The way that we as a church become bold in our living for the gospel in our city is not, is not through trying to be good people. It is by recognizing that what names us and owns us is the eternal love of our Savior. And with the confidence that comes from knowing that we have access, that we have a high priest who is for us, as Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 teaches us. It allows us to live with incredible boldness. Look at how they were bold in light of living for the name of Christ. They were bold, first of all, in their self-awareness. They were bold in their self-awareness. Listen, Peter says to them, after they call him out, and after, in the council, in the Sanhedrin, this, the, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 people, plus one, plus the moderator, the high priest. And in the center of the Sanhedrin are sitting Peter and John and this man that they had just healed. And they see all the people around him, and they know that they don't have a case. They know that they can't possibly... Um, uh, imprison them because all the people saw this happen. I mean, there's no way you can argue with the evidence. And they, so they say, well, let's just threaten them. Let's threaten them and then maybe they'll stop preaching in the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is what threatens the Sanhedrin. They wanted to be the political power players. They wanted to be the aristocracy. They wanted to control the temple. They wanted to control the religious experiences. And Christ's resurrection was threatening to them. The Sadducees are the ones who do not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That was bad. They didn't believe in the resurrection because they only believed in what Moses had to teach. And Moses never taught in the first five books of the Old Testament about the resurrection of the dead. And so they said, well, therefore, there must not be one. And so Peter stands before them and he says, listen, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Peter has this unbelievable sense of boldness. Do you? What's your pressure point? For Peter, it was his safety when he was threatened. What's yours? Your finances? Friendships? Listen, what name do you live for? Because so much of who you are is defined by what the most important person or most important group of people think about you. And for many of us, our confession ought to be, Lord, you are not the most important person in our life. And that's why so many of us are tied in knots spiritually. Because we're constantly striving and living for other people. Listen, Peter is boldly aware of his own uh, he's of himself, of his own tendency to go back to exploring and living for his own name. But he's been so changed by the gospel. Um, he was bold in self-awareness. Two, he was bold in love. We want to be a church that's bold in our love together. Listen, Peter and John had every right every right to heal this lame man and go on and just ditch him. The guy didn't have friends for one hand. This lame beggar was a man who had been carried every day to the beautiful gate to beg. He didn't have any friend. They used him to give a portion of 
the alms he earned back to the guys that carried him. I mean, everything is worth a price. So he was basically a beggar that was on the clock. He didn't have any friends. He had employers. And here Peter and John are standing with this man, and they keep him by their side. He's with them, maybe because he's their evidence. I don't know, but he's with them, and they do not forsake him. And he comes into the church together with them. Listen, they were bold in their love because they could associate with people who they would never otherwise associate with. The resurrection doesn't just change our view of ourselves, but it changes our understanding of who's in and who's out in the kingdom. And so many of us, me included, are afraid to associate with people that may, people may find us weird. Or f- students at school, kids at school, are you, are you able to be friends with a person that just doesn't look like you or talk like you or act like you? Listen, God calls us to be friends. He calls us to love with a kind of bold love that comes from knowing that we are marked by the name of Christ. We have a bold love. Thirdly, we're bold in our evangelism. Peter says to these guys, look, he says first to the Jews, you crucified Jesus in Acts 2. Then he says to the Pharisees in Acts 3, you crucified Jesus. And now he goes to the last institution of, Ju- uh, of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, the, Phar- uh, the uh, Sadducees. And he says, you crucified Jesus. I mean, he's not mixing words. But there is therefore now no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. And he extends to these religious Jews an incredible opportunity to believe the gospel in the face of threats. He's bold in his evangelism. Are you? You can't be if you're marked by any other name than the name of your Savior. The resurrection changes our perspective on our ultimate authority. Listen, he's bold also in his friendship and in his prayer. He's bold in his friendship. We want to be a church that's bold in our self-awareness, that's bold in our love for each other, that's bold in our evangelism, and we want to be a church that's bold in our friendships. Like if you just come to Trinity on Sunday morning, we are so pumped you're here. But we want you to be able to enter into community with us. We want to know you. We want you to know us. And we're not trying to impress each other because the only person that's really that impressive is Jesus. And we center our lives around his gospel. It says that Peter and John immediately, when they were released in verse 23, they went where? It says they went to their friends. Do you have friends? Real friends that know you? Listen, the gospel, if God really is the most important person in your life, and he thinks you're terrific, it gives us this incredible resource to go and to be friends with people and be vulnerable with them, to let them know that you are broken and that you need their help. You cannot operate independently. They were bold in their self-awareness. They knew each other. They knew themselves very well. They were bold in their love. They were bold in their evangelism. They were bold in their friendships. And lastly, they were bold in their generosity. We're going to talk about this on the back side of Easter in about a month and a half. They were bold in their generosity. Why? Because they didn't consider anything their own, but they gladly gave for the sake of others. There wasn't a needy person among them. And Luke is setting up a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, as we're going to see in a couple of months. Listen, are you bold in the way you spend your money? Do you walk by faith? With what what meager resources many of us have, do you walk by faith with those? 
Or are you so fearful of what people, are you so fearful of losing your portfolio, of not trusting God to provide for you, that tithing is just not a question for you. You don't do it. You don't, I don't do it. It's my money. I'll do with it what I want. It's not your money. It's the Lord's. And he calls us to be generous with it. Because if you really do understand yourself in light of the gospel, and the Lord commands you to give generously, then we ought to be joyful givers. So what names you? What owns you? What tells you you're terrific? Because whatever names you, owns you, whatever the most important person in your life or important group of people in your life are, they determine the way you understand yourself. And the great news of the gospel is that the paradox of the gospel is that every other religion tells you that you know, you're, you're just not much. And they dig a hole for you and they say, here's a shovel, good luck. Dig yourself out. Or they tell you, you're great, you're wonderful, you're awesome. Just, just, do, you know, just be a moral person, you're going to make it. Some religions just give you the critique and some religions just give you the approval. But listen, both of those without the other, without the cross, are just sentiment. One leaves you in your utter guilt and one leaves you in a fairy tale world because you look in the world around you and you see how broken it is and you know that can't simply be the case. You can't just think positive thoughts. But it's in the gospel that you are fiercely given the truth about our world, that you are at the same time broken and at the same time loved and it gives you an incredible sense of boldness so that you can stand in the face of Kim, of Kim Jong-un who just this week had 33 Christians killed in North Korea. We suffer together. And one of these days, it's going to be hard for us to worship together. We're going to give to the church, but it won't be tax deductible. It's coming. It's coming. We're going to be able to worship, but it will not be with the same kind of freedom. You're going to be able to serve clients, but you're going to be told what kind of clients you can and cannot serve. Listen, persecution is coming. And Satan laughs at us now because he says, I don't need guns and bullets because I've got Amazon.com and Overstock.com. That'll get them. Listen, what you think about yourself is dependent upon what the most important person in your respective life thinks about you. And your king thinks you're terrific. Do you view yourself in the same way? only when you do that that you'll be able to have your back against the wall against the highest authorities of the land and you will be able to say with them with precision and with filled with the Holy Spirit Jesus said you will be taken into persecution and at that time the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say and here it is in Acts 4 Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and he says precisely what he needs to say there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved because the name of Jesus Christ should mark us as a church. It should name us. It should own us. Does it name you? That's the question. Does it name your family? Do you want it to name you? See the love of your Savior for you and run to him because he is a God of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you can make us 
so uncommonly bold when they understand the gospel. Lord, we live, um, I confess, that I'm often not bold. Lord, and I'm paid to be bold. And sometimes it's hard to be bold. Lord, help me to repent of trying to make a name for myself. Lord, help us to repent of how enslaved we are to other people's opinions. And help us to see that in you, we have everything we could want. So I pray that you'll open our eyes to see how beautiful, believable, precious you are. Your church, marked by your name, little Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.